Hello and welcome to Anomalous Waves, a podcast discussing all things strange. I'm John. I'm Ami. And today I will be diving into euphonauts, aka the pilots of the UFOs, and those that attempt to keep the witnesses silent. And I will be doing a follow-up and discussing Kushtaka and some similarities I found between Kushtaka and Bigfoot. If you have a spooky story that you would like us to read or an audio clip of you telling the story, uh, something you want us to research or a comment, please send it to anomalouswaves at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all at Anomalous Waves. All of the social media info, including our references for the show, will be in the notes section of this episode. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Anomalous Waves. So I had a bit of a synchronicity slash happy accident uh, after our first show involving the mystery airships. I was reading uh, chapter 10 of the collected works of John Keel. Uh, It's called Flying Saucer to the Center of Your Mind. Uh, The article is called The UFO Name Game. It's about how most witness reports are from people with really rare last names, not really Smith or Jones or anything common like that. It also talks about how many witnesses' names refer to water in various ways. The example he gives is Reeves, which is similar to a French word meaning riverbank, and also a nautical term meaning to pass a rope through a hole. And this gets him talking about anchors. So then he has these three stories involving airships, ropes, anchors, and crewmen aboard the ships. Okay, so this first one is in Merkle, Texas, April 26, 1897. This was just a few days after the Hamilton sighting that I talked about in the first episode. So this involves a group of people leaving church who witness an airship. um, And then they see a rope hanging down with an anchor attached. And they see a smaller man in a blue sailor suit climb down the rope, cut the rope, the anchor drops, and the ship flies away. Wow. So then he tells a similar story of some churchgoers who are actually at mass at the time, the anchor gets caught in the arch above the church's door and they see a sailor jump overboard, climb down the rope and try and get the anchor off of the arch. Now they said it looked like he was in water. That's so weird. So weird. So the people were trying to pull him down But then the bishop of the church was like, no, you're going to kill him if you do that. So they let him go. He scurries back up the rope. The crew cuts it. The anchor drops. The ship flies away. Now, the weird thing about this is it's actually from an ancient Irish manuscript, the Speculum Regali from 956 AD. Wow. So like a thousand years before. Yeah. (laughs) So then he talks about another incident in uh, Bristol, England, around 1200 AD. This was also churchgoers who were um, celebrating a feast day. So they saw a rope hanging from an airship, and the anchor this time was stuck in some rocks. They saw a crewman doing the same thing, climbing down the rope, trying to 
get the anchor out. But this time, I guess the people actually pulled him down. And it says that uh, apparently he suffocated from the mist in our moist atmosphere. And then the church kept the anchor on their door. What? So, of course, they could have all stemmed from the first story. Yeah. But Keel mentions someone once said, that a citizen of Merkel, Texas, having that rare Irish manuscript in 1897 would be fully as fantastic as the reports themselves. That's a good point. But that got me kind of down the humanoid rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. So these accounts um, come from chapter eight of the same book. um, And it's from an article called Never Mind the Saucer. Did you see the guys who were driving it? This was from True Magazine, February 1967. This account was in 1966. Okay. It was a man named Eddie Laxton. He was an electronics engineer, and he was on his way to work at an Air Force base where he taught electronics. So another serious person. Yeah, like that type one, I think, mm-hmm. report. Okay. Um, so he's driving down the highway. And he sees all of a sudden this giant, he calls it a fish-shaped object, come down in the middle of the highway, and he slams on his brakes, and he's about 50 feet away from it. He talks about the ship in really great detail. He even talks about this series of, like, numbers on it that almost sounds like a license plate or something. It's very strange. But he also sees a door with a bright light pouring out of it. And he sees a man who's wearing coveralls, uh, a bill with the cap turned up. And and this man has a flashlight and he's like looking under the ship. What? He also said he's about 5'9", 180, and 30 to 35 years old. He gets out of his car. The man sees him and uh, scurries back up the ladder and then takes off. And when it takes off, he says it sounds like a high-speed drill, and he gets all the hairs on his arms and neck stand up. So he's then interviewed by like 25 or 30 different people because he works at an Air Force base. So they're making him draw pictures of it. They're having him do all sorts of things. And he says, by the end, someone said, we'll just say that you saw a helicopter. A helicopter. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did he ever say what he thought? The creature was doing? He didn't say specifically, but I mean, with a flashlight under it, almost sounds like someone that is on the side of the highway checking their car. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's... Seeing if he got a flat tire or <laughs> flat something. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Screws loose on the ship. Yeah. Um, so it's, so he talks about the coveralls, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's pretty common for these humanoid-looking visitors to be wearing coveralls or a tight-fitting suit, kind of like a diver's suit. And they're kind of clean? Kind of clean. Usually, like, slicked-back hair. And it it ranges from pale to, like, olive-skinned or darker complexion, they talk about. Um, Sometimes they're wearing a helmet, or people call it goldfish bowls. Kind of reminds me of a diver's suit, too. Or even a gas mask. Weird. Yeah. So he also discusses these two incidents that happened in Argentina on a strip of highway between Cordoba and Rio Cabellos. So the first experience he talks about 
is with this 42-year-old doctor and his wife uh, in 1964. So they were driving down this highway. Same kind of situation as the other guy, really. Mm-hmm. A lot of roads. Common a lot of roads. The doctor and his wife were driving down this highway, and all of a sudden, a brilliant light comes down and parks right in the middle of the highway. Now, um, the doctor, funny enough, just kind of flashes his lights to try and tell them to like dim their lights, oh, okay. which I thought was a weird reaction. That'll work. Yeah, but then his engine stalls, and he talks about how they just sit there for like 20 minutes, confused. So then he kind of goes, okay, I need to check this out. He has a revolver. He goes out, and all of a sudden, uh, a man comes up speaking in Portuguese, and he says, what's the matter, friend? And the doctor says, well, my car won't start. And the man says, why don't you try it now? And he turns it, and it works. And when it works, the headlights turn on, and he sees the ship. And it's this, you know, just like every other ship, just crazy looking. He's never seen anything like it before. And the man says, don't be frightened. Um, I'm a terrestrial and I have a mission here on Earth. And then he just walks away. And there's two other guys waiting at the ship and they all have tight gray outfits on. They get in and then they take off. Did did it work? Was the guy not not scared? (laughs) He said, they trembled like leaves as soon as the... (laughs) Or they shook like leaves as soon as the uh, ship took off. Okay, so the bit of honesty didn't really work out. No. Also, why were they sitting there for 20 minutes? Why There's a, there's a lot of weird weirdness in that story to me. So along that same strip of highway, seven years earlier in 1957, a young man was riding his motorcycle when all of a sudden his engine stalled and he looks above him there's a huge disc-shaped object floating above him. So he freaks out and he dives into a ditch. He sees a lift go down and a door open and a human looking man comes out, walks over to him, doesn't say anything, just gestures his hand out. The man takes his hand and follows him onto the ship. He goes onto the ship and he says, there's several other, you know, beings that look like men And they're all wearing these tight kind of diver type suits. But he says they're made out of plastic rather than cloth. And the other euphonauts are not even paying attention to him. They're just at their intricate looking control panels. He was surprised because there was windows that you could see outside. But when he was outside, he could not see windows on the ship. So this makes me think maybe a camera system or something. So after that, I mean, it's not like they did any experiments on him or anything that he reports. The guy walks him back out, like taps him on the shoulder, (laughs) says bye, and they take off. And he says his motorcycle won't start until the ship's pretty far away. Okay, so this next story is from John Keel's Mothman Prophecies. So anyone that's read that book will be very familiar with Indrid Cold and Woody Derenberger. At 7 p.m. on November 2nd, 1966, he was heading home in his panel truck after a long, hard day on the road. The weather was sour, chill, and rainy. As he drove up a long hill outside of Parkersburg on Interstate 77, a sudden crash sounded in the back of his truck. He snapped on his interior lights and looked back. A sewing machine had fallen off the top of a stereo, 
but there didn't seem to be any real damage. A car swept up behind him and passed him. Another vehicle seemed to be following it. He eased his foot on the accelerator. He had been speeding slightly and thought it might be a police car. The vehicle, a black blob in the dark, drew alongside him, cut in front and slowed. Woody Derenberger gaped in amazement at the thing. It wasn't an automobile, but was shaped like an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney, flaring at both ends, narrowing down to a small neck and then enlarging in a great bulge in the center. It was a charcoal gray. He slammed on his brakes as the object turned crossways, blocking the road, stopping only eight or ten feet from it. A door slid open on the side of the thing, and a man stepped out. I didn't hear an audible voice, Woody said later. I just had a feeling like I knew what this man was thinking. He wanted me to roll down my window. The stranger was about 5 feet 10 inches tall with long, dark hair, combed straight back. His skin was heavily tanned. Grinning broadly, his arms crossed and his hands tucked under his armpits, he walked to the panel truck. He was wearing a dark top coat. Underneath it, Woody could see some kind of garment made of glistening, greenish material, almost metallic in appearance. Do not be afraid, the grinning man told him. The grinning man did not speak aloud. Woody sensed the words. We mean you no harm. I come from a country much less powerful than yours. He asked for Woody's name. Woody told him. My name is Cold. I sleep, breathe, and bleed even as you do. Mr. Cold nodded toward the lights of Parkersburg in the distance and asked what kind of place it was. Woody tried to explain it was a center for businesses and homes, a city. In his world, Cold explained, such places were called gatherings. While this telepathic conversation was taking place, the chimney-shaped object ascended and hovered some 40 or 50 feet above the road. Other cars came along the road and passed them. Cold told Woody to report the encounter to the authorities, promising to come forward at a later date to confirm it. After a few minutes of aimless generalities, Cold announced he would meet Woody again soon. The object ascended, the door opened, Cold entered it, and it rose quickly and silently into the night. So after Woody Derenberger's sight, he kind of became like a super celebrity around there. Um, crowds of people started gathering at his farm every night, hoping to see things because he did have many more experiences with injured cold and UFOs and all sorts of stuff. He also started receiving crank calls threatening him if he didn't shut up. Calls that consisted of nothing except eerie electronic sounds and code-like beeps. This leads me to another group of humanoids uh, that many people refer to as the men in black. So some people think maybe these are government agents. Some people think that these might be visitors themselves, trying to keep the witnesses who experience these things quiet. So they're usually dressed in expensive-looking black or gray suits made out of slightly reflective material. Their shoes are reported to have unusually thick rubber soles, and these outfits are usually out-of-date looking, but completely brand new. Hmm. There's even reports of them being kind of stylish before it was stylish. So they also are known to drive black Cadillacs that are usually around sometimes 20-year-old models, but brand new. 
Um, they've also been reported driving in Volkswagens and Fords. Sometimes campers, station wagons, and even panel trucks are reported. So imagine seeing a guy in a nice black suit coming out of a panel truck. Yeah. <laughs> but also, a lot of times, they might be wearing coveralls. So they have been called tall and thin and even cadaver-like. Sometimes they're um, reported being really pasty. They also have been reported as having really long, thin fingers. All those things are very similar to other humanoid sightings. Yeah. So sometimes they also come to witnesses' houses dressed like Air Force officers. And they'll use the names of Air Force officers from a base nearby. This actually became such a problem that the Air Force was looking into it for a while because so many people reported officers coming to their house. Um, in 1969, in West Virginia and Ohio, there was even a blonde woman who claimed to be John Keel's secretary. What? And she was interviewing witnesses, asking very strange questions. And these were witnesses that he interviewed but never wrote about. There are even a few reports of them not knowing how to properly eat food. This uh, waitress in a diner who a strange man in an ill-fitting black suit comes in and he just says food. She hands him a menu. He looks like he can't read the menu and just says food. She says, how about a steak? Gives him a steak and asks him where he's from. And he says, from another world. And she's just thinking, oh, one of these artsy, yeah. artsy types. Right. So then he just stares at the plate like and the fork like doesn't know what to do with it. So she cuts it up for him and shows him how to do it. And then he just wolfs it down. There's another report of a witness who had uh, one of the Air Force officers over who were asking her questions. And she said that she offered them jello. I don't know why she was offering them jello, but she was. And apparently the Air Force officer tried to drink it. <laughs> she sh had to show him how to eat it with a spoon. That's, that's kind of cute. It's kind of kind of strange, but Jello was pretty popping in one point of time. It in was like fifties and sixties for very sure. Very popular dish. Very popular dish. I heard some people put peas in it. So this was actually sent to me by my friend. Um he has a YouTube channel called Onder and Lee on the Trail. And they're more, um, him and his partner are like boots on the ground researchers. Okay. They actually go to like abandoned hospitals and like try and film the sky to get UFOs. And they, they've got the equipment. So I'll also put his channel in the notes section. So this is um, called the Maury Island Incident. So it's in Washington. And uh, it's near Tacoma. This is an incident that actually, like most of the report, comes from Kenneth Arnold, who we talked about in the first episode as being the pilot who helped coin the term flying saucer. Mm -hmm. A lot of this comes from Gray Barker's They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. So this also happened in 1947, very close to the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Reportedly, it was two harbor patrolmen named Fred Chrisman and Harold Dahl. They were cruising on their boat when their whole crew saw six donut-shaped objects, and five of them were flying around one who seemed to be having mechanical trouble. There was then a muffled explosion. They said lava rocks and metallic residue fell down, 
and some of it landed in their boat and apparently killed a dog and injured Dahl's son. So then the remaining objects flew off. So they gathered some of the material, and uh, when Kenneth Arnold came to hear the report, he brought two army officers with him who supposedly were higher up than they actually let on. Um, they took the material, and then their plane crashed when it was flying out of Tacoma. What? Kenneth Arnold, when he got back to his hotel, someone called his hotel and said that it was sabotaged. So the morning after the initial sighting, so before Kenneth Arnold interviewed them, Dahl was visited by a man in a black suit. The man offered to take him to breakfast and said he wanted to talk to him about something. So on the car ride, the guy wouldn't say anything about what he wanted to talk about. When they got to the restaurant, they sat down and the man started telling him everything that Dahl had seen, as if he was there. He then started threatening him and saying that if he loved his family, and he needs to keep his mouth shut, not tell anyone about this. So then later, he told Kenneth Arnold, because he said he thought the guy was just a crackpot. Yeah. So, you know, fast forward, they tell Kenneth Arnold the story, they give the army officers the metallic stuff, the plane crashes, Arnold gets a phone call talking about sabotage, and then Dahl and Chrisman disappear a little bit later. Who knows what happened to him? This is what Gray Barker says. But Gray Barker is also known to create some hoaxes himself. Some people also believe, of course, this whole thing is a hoax. But isn't that what the silencers want you to believe? stumbled across the book The Legend of Bigfoot, Leaving His Mark on the World by T.S. Mart and Mel Cabre. It dives into the myths, personal stories, and pop culture surrounding this iconic and mysterious legend. It even discusses the clinket legend of the Otterman, the shapeshifter capable of transforming into a loved one that can whistle, mimic the sounds of a loved one's voice, and even the sound of baby's cries. A book titled Clinket Myths and Text by John R. Swanton is mentioned. John R. Swanton was an ethnographer. Now, an ethnographer is a person who focuses attention on a community, selecting knowledgeable informants who know the activities of the community well. This book includes many Clinket legends and even the legend of the Kushtaka. Do you want to hear one of the legends I found? Yes, please. Okay. Now, this one actually really scared me. One fall, four men went hunting by canoe. They set traps and then made camp. The next day, one of the men went to check the traps, and in one he found an odd, hairy creature unlike anything he had ever seen. He called it a land otter. The man took the bough of a tree, twisted it around the dead otter's neck, and carried it home. As it bounced along behind him, something in the distance whistled. When the man arrived at his camp, he began to get the otter ready to eat. He and his fellow hunters cut the otter up and were going to put it in the pot to cook when the whistling started again. After the pot boiled, the men began eating and once again the whistling started up. This time, it was coming from a nearby tree. 
and after they located the sound, a rock flew out of the tree towards them. One of the hunters threw a rock back, and then rocks started flying back and forth from the trees. The men fought back by throwing their canoes and trying to knock the creature out of the tree. They tossed the canoe back all night, and in the morning, they could finally see the creature in the tree. It looked exactly like the creature they had caught and ate, but it had human features. The hunters lit a fire to get the creature out of the tree, and the otter man fell into the fire, and the hunters threw coals over the top of him and burned him up. Thinking the ordeal was over, the men were relieved and started to head home. But as they approached the beach, an uncontrollable force overtook them. The men began to wriggle from side to side and acted as if they were crazy. The land otters had taken their souls. It is said that if anyone goes to that place, they will lose their mind and act the same way. So it did not specify what area, but I am wondering if it is also close to Thomas Bay. Oh, it's a good thought. Yeah. I bet it is. In the book titled Where the Footprints End, Volume 1, Folklore, there is a whole section on stone throwing. Now, some written accounts date back to the 1800s, which is also similar to your topic. It was in the 1800s. Mm. In 1877, a newspaper article from Pennsylvania, which is thousands of miles away from southeast Alaska, it mentions a fat, hairy, wild man with an affinity for throwing stones at barns. And 115 years later... There was a report of a light brown, hairy, man-sized creature that was observed tossing rocks at a national park maintenance man driving through Northern California. (laughs) Guy's just trying to do his job. I know. I felt bad. I'm like, really? (laughs) So where the footprints and features a Class B report. So this is a report where the person possibly had a Bigfoot encounter. But due to factors such as weather or lighting, they could not clearly see the creature. So one of the Class B reports was reported in 2005, and it was a Virginia policeman, another serious person, heard a loud vocalization from a distant ridge while camping. Once his comrade fell asleep, he began to notice repetitive clicking sounds. Mm. Though they were coming from pebbles bouncing off a nearby picnic table, He saw no one throwing them. The following morning, he heard what sounded like Russian, Eastern European, or Asian language of some kind drifting from the woods. Samurai chatter. Yeah. That's what they call it. Oh, is that that an actual term? Yeah. It's um, it's, uh, something that's in this really famous recording, um, the Sierra Sounds, which I can play a little piece right here. So a few days ago, my mom was waiting outside a restaurant for her to go order, and she got to talking to a man who was also outside waiting. And he just started telling her stories, but some of his stories were about Bigfoot, of all things. Out of nowhere, did she ask about Bigfoot? No, no, she had not talked about Bigfoot or mean asked about it. 
The man told a story about a man who was traveling alone across Sadus Pass, which is a pass in Washington State. And as he was driving, something threw a deer clear across the highway in front of his car. I mean, he got out and he could never figure out what threw the deer. That's crazy. Sadus Pass freaks me out. That's the one near Goldendale. Yeah, the near one near Goldendale and Washington. What is interesting about Goldendale too is that there are a lot of reports of Bigfoot in and around Goldendale and Sadus Pass. Wow, of course, Mm -hmm. a road. Yeah, that's true. Roads are just common theme on this show apparently (laughs) yeah we love roads so the man also told a story about a group of friends who were camping in the woods along sadus pass and they were up late talking by the campfire when suddenly one friend got hit by a small stone and then another was hit on the shoulder and everyone laughed but then suddenly a bunch of stones were being thrown from the dark of the forest and then more and more until the campers were being pelted hard and had to run for cover Ooh. Mm mm-hmm So one of the campers told his wife to wait inside the tent that he knew what he had to do. The man took some leftover camping supplies and a bag of tobacco. He put his coat over his eyes to shield himself from the stones, and he ventured into the woods. He laid the tobacco and supplies on a fallen log, and the pelting stopped. Awesome. Gifting. The woods grew silent, and then the group gathered around the fire and they were not bothered again. Yep. The yeah. offering was made. And gifting, along with stone throwing, is commonly found throughout Bigfoot stories. And where the footprints end, there is a whole chapter on gifting. So one story is from a man named Joe who had placed some squash picked from his garden in a bucket, and he left it on his porch overnight. The next morning when he woke up, he went outside and he found the squash and the bucket were both missing. So he found it strange that a creature had taken the bucket, but he assumed maybe it was a raccoon. A few days later, he returned home from work, and he found a dead mouse in some grass carefully wrapped up in a leaf on his doorstep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. A year passed, and then one evening, Joe was watching TV when he noticed something moving in his garden. Joe looked out the window, and he saw something hunched over and rummaging through his squash plants. Joe stepped outside for a better look, but when doing so, he made the porch boards creak, and the thing in the garden turned and looked at him. Joe could then see two luminous eyes, and when the thing stood up, it was a massive creature, at least seven feet tall with black hair covering its body, and it was just thick and bulky. Mm. The creature ran off with barely making a sound, and Joe then started to wonder if this creature had left him the mouse gift. (laughs) So to test out his theory, Joe took some turkey and he wrapped it in leaves and grass and he left it on the picnic table outside. And when he got home from work that day, the food was gone and on his doorstep, there was another dead mouse along with a small pile of berries. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a a pretty fair trade. Makes me think of also when... Isn't it when cats give you a mouse, it's because they think you can't fend for yourself? Yeah, my cat would do that a lot for me when I was little. (laughs) (laughs) So the creature was never seen again, but Joe always leaves gifts for it, and he still gets gifts in return. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a great book, too. Uh, Joshua Cutchin and uh, Timothy Renner. 
So in The Legend of Bigfoot, they say that people who are in the vicinity of Bigfoot commonly report having rocks thrown at them or in their directions. Researchers believe this might be an attempt at saying hello, offering a warning, or expressing their curiosity. Well, especially when it's like pebbles. Yeah. It's like, hey, hey. Yeah. A rock, chucking a rock at someone might be a little. Yeah, if it's like, you know. That's a warning maybe or more. Yeah. Chucking a deer uh, across the road. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know. (laughs) It could be territorial. Maybe some aren't as sweet. Seems like they wouldn't waste that deer. but It's no Harry and the Hendersons. (laughs) So another theory discussed in the book is that Bigfoots have the ability to use infrasound. Infrasound is a low-frequency sound with a frequency below the lower limit of audibility, which is generally 20 hertz. Animals such as elephants, hippos, rhinos, giraffes, and alligators use infrasound to communicate over distances. But infrasound has negative effects on humans. It can cause feelings of dread, nausea, panic, memory loss, emotional distress, hallucinations, blurred vision, and you can even lose consciousness. Yeah, I I know they were, like, testing that for, like, riot control in crowds. I don't like that. Yeah. I found an article from 2015 titled Unknown Dimensions. Could the elusive Bigfoot be using infrasonic vocalizations? Very wordy, but I like it. Mm -hmm. So it collected several people's encounters with Bigfoot. One witness stated that he felt something staring at him for several minutes He then glanced off into the brush along the path he was on, and he saw a big hairy thing well over six feet tall. He recounted feeling lightheaded and almost dizzy. He soon reached his vehicle, but stated he was several miles away from the encounter before the sense of paranoia began to fade. And a woman named Stacy Black described being in an area recognized for Bigfoot activity. She said, I got a feeling of confusion and disorientation. I felt very sick, and my heart was about to jump out of my chest. I realized I had to get out of there and made my way back to the truck. This feeling lasted a few days. A few days? Wow. That's horrible. Yeah. So I found this very weird because in the Kushtaka Hunter story, the men felt an uncontrollable force and started to act crazy. And in our last episode, in the Harry Culp story, he lost consciousness after he came into contact with Kushtaka. Yeah. So it just kind of supports the theory that Kushtaka and Bigfoot our cousins. And with that, I would like to invite you to send us an email with any sort of story you have with stone throwing, gifting, or infrasonic sound. Did you know that reports of paranormal activity has been on the rise during coronavirus? Since lockdowns began in early spring, the Atlantic Paranormal Society has seen a jump in reports of hauntings. People started to work from home, find new hobbies, get into a new routine, but have also seemed to find themselves with some unwanted house guests. People have reported disembodied voices, seeing shadowy figures, and seemingly possessed electronics. They even feel cold brushes of air, have objects being thrown at them, or their pets have even been acting strangely. John Tenney, 
a paranormal researcher and a former host of the TV show Ghost Stalkers, estimates that he received two to five reports of a haunted house each month in 2019. Now, in the last few months, it's been more like five to ten in a week. The New York Times wrote an article in May titled, Quarantining with a Ghost? It's Scary. They interviewed several people from around the U.S. about their spooky encounters. Danielle, a 39-year-old lawyer, first experienced strange activity in February. She said she kept walking into her guest room and she would find a particular lamp turned on, although she had no memory of leaving it that way. This happened again and again and again until on a whim, she said out loud, don't turn that back on. The next time she entered the room, she found the ceiling light, which she never ever switches on, blazing. On more than one occasion, she has heard the voices of a man and a woman having a conversation she couldn't quite make out. And more recently, she was sewing face masks in the same bedroom. She had exactly enough fabric left to make one more mask. But when she briefly turned away from the ironing board where she had just pressed the double cotton gauze, the two remaining pieces disappeared. It was gone, she said. Like in a 20 second period, gone. I went and checked the garbage pail, nothing. Checked the recycling, nothing. My fabric stash, nothing. I tore the house apart looking for those two pieces of fabric and they have never come back. John Tenney has offered a take on the increase of ghost reports. He states that you could argue that the ghost puttering around in your kitchen is not only there, but that she's always been there. Maybe you're what's changed. Maybe you're listening more closely in the greater quiet all around us. Perhaps we're just now starting to notice that the world is a little bit weirder than we give it credit for. On August 29th of this year at about 6.45 p.m., an American Airlines flight reported a guy in a jetpack at an altitude of 3,000 feet above LAX. The crew said the man was about 30 yards away from the aircraft when they spotted him. About 10 minutes later, another plane spotted the guy in a jetpack. JetBlue 23, he used caution. Person in a jetpack reported 300 yards south of the LA final at about 3,000 feet. JetBlue 23, we're heard. You're definitely looking. A company called Jetpack Aviation, based in San Fernando Valley of LA, invented what they call the world's only jetpack. It can reach up to 15,000 feet in altitude and operate for about 10 minutes. The company does not sell these jetpacks and only lets people who have taken a three-week course operate them in a controlled space. About six weeks later, there was another sighting on October 14th, this time at an altitude of 6,000 feet, and was reported by a China Airlines flight at around 1.45 p.m. The crew reported a bright object at 6,000 feet, and when asked if it was a UAV, which is an unmanned aerial vehicle, or a jetpack, the crew said, like a jetpack. How about Chinese, we just saw the flight object at the 6,000. MC 0060, can you say that one more time, please? We just saw the, the flight object, like a flight suit that's passing by at 6,000. Flying object, was it a uh, UAV or was it a jetpack? A uh, large jetpack, it's too shiny, uh, it's too fast. MC 0060, Roger, thank you. The FBI is investigating the incident. 
FBI Los Angeles Field Office spokeswoman Laura E. Miller said, The FBI is in contact with the FAA and is investigating multiple reports of what, according to witnesses, appeared to be an individual in a jetpack near LAX, including one today reported by a China Airlines crew. What exactly the crew saw during these flights remains a mystery. Thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Anomalous Waves. Just a reminder that all of our social media info, our email, and our references for today's episode will be in the notes section of this episode. Be sure to follow us on social media. And if you have any questions, if you have a story, or if you have a suggestion for a topic to look into, shoot us an email at anomalouswaves at gmail.com or contact us on any of our social media platforms. All right, see you later. Goon the sheesh. Lily, say bye. Bye.